0: Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It's Sunday, September 17th. And today we are continuing our two-part interview with Brad Stolberg. His latest book is called The Master of Change. Yesterday, we talked about his previous books, how he kind of got to this point. Today, we're focusing on something that's kind of a cool concept. He pointed it out that I've I've always thought about it. He just put a name to it. It's called dualistic thinking mode. That is something that often we do when we talk about our financial lives. It's either this or that. It's very linear. And Brad's going to try to help us engage in non-dualistic thinking, this and that. Here's more of our interview with Brad Stolberg. If you are caught... In a dualistic thinking mode, where you know, I'll, I'll let me use myself. Uh, I, I'm like, okay, I'm in a contract year. They're either going to renew me or they're not, and I'm going to be all nervous about that. And you know, who do I need to talk to? Like, like, how do I get out of that cycle? How do I help myself get out of that cycle, even in that little weird micro way?
1: So in the moment, in that micro way, what I was going to say is read read my book, which I know you've done. Of course. And then course. If, if that doesn't work, get a good therapist or ideally both. Yes. <laughs> but, but in the micro way, I think that it is just stepping back. And when you catch yourself saying this or that, your self-talk talk track, just trying to reframe it and say like, what would it look like to think of this situation not as polar opposites working against each other, but just like me being in conversation with it. Hmm. So I'm either going to get renewed or I'm not. That could shift to, hey, like, what are my values? I, I love being on the air. I love interviewing people. Um, I, I love being on television, whatever it might be. And – I don't know. Like I'm not my own employer, so how can I develop some anti fragility, and how can I make sure you have this podcast that I have enough venues where, if my contract isn't renewed, that I can still do the things that I love, while still hoping that my contract's renewed? It's In almost words. like never let a good crisis go to go to waste.
0: Absolutely, it was so funny that you that you say that because sometimes the thing that you so fear is the great opportunity. So I have never, uh, you know, I'm not like a change monkey. I don't like change for the sake of change. But I think that when you go, if I have gone through change, whether it's relationship change or career change, I feel like because I've done it, that it has been a, a gift to myself to be able to say, Oh, well, I guess if they didn't renew it, it wouldn't be that big a deal because I could do something else and I would have another way. So, what I do think it is, is helpful if you feel like, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't like, I don't like this disorder chaos thing. I like things to go back to, like, I want it to reset. Chance starts just not going to reorder. It's not, it's, I'm sorry, it's not going to go back to the way it was that, that homeostasis is, is not going to actually occur. And so, my my little kind of work around is always to say hey wait a second nothing bad's really going to happen it doesn't matter it's going to be okay and like i do have faith in that and that there is a way to prepare for this i mean look that's kind of it's funny that you and i both wrote books in a very similar period right? And I wrote a book that was responding to all the people calling because we went this podcast, which last time you were on, it was a twice a week podcast. It is now a daily podcast. And that happened in response to the pandemic, where we were just flooded with emails from people who were just worried and anxious about the markets or about what was going on. And then it was a more thoughtful contemplation of like, what do I want in my life? And so my book, Uh, the Great Money Reset was a response to that was like, well, maybe if I could give people framework for their change, they would elect to change more, more comfortably. And, And really, instead of waiting for a change to occur to figure out what they want, and then prepare for it, which is I think what you're saying, it's like, if you if you're in a place where you're really worried, use that as a way to inspect what some other options might be. Is that right?
1: That is, know your core values and then think about how you could apply them flexibly. And I think ultimately, and why we get along so well, Jill, is we're doing very similar work. And I really think, as you were describing your wonderful book, it occurred to me, we're basically just trying to arm ourselves and arm our readers and listeners with a really robust toolkit that they can strap around their waist, and then they can go meet the world with all of these tools knowing that like the world's never going to meet you on your terms. You have to meet the world on the world's terms. But the more tools that you have, the more that you can work with it.
0: Before we got on the air, you said to me, you know, I think this book is going to be good because there's an election year coming up. So can you talk a little bit about why that why you think that the idea of change is sort of thrust upon us and how to respond to that when it, it, it is such a fractured and polarized world in which we live?
1: That's right. So I'm thinking in particular, there's a part of the book that talks about how in order to fix a broken world, we can't become broken people. Mm. And I think in an election year with the current fracturing, as you said, rightly of, of, of society in America, at least along political lines, and to a large extent, the media ecosystem, I think it is very easy for people to fall into one of two extremes. The first extreme is bury your head in the sand, toxic positivity, be a Pollyanna, pretend none of this is happening, just go to your yoga class and be happy. (laughs) The other extreme, which I think is equally as bad, is despair and nihilism and anger and just hopelessness. This thrives on social media. Both of these two extremes do. If we're going to fix a broken world, we can't do either of those things. Now, those things are both really simple and, and they're, they're lazy because both of them absolve you of the need to actually participate and do anything, mm. right? Because like, yeah. if things are hopeless, why take action? And if everything is great and you're not paying attention, why worry? There is such a big middle ground in there that like we, we all have a part to do, whether it's in our families, our workplaces, our small communities, Like politics can be very local to not fall prey to one of those two extremes and to actually work with what's happening in the middle and realize that some stuff does suck and some stuff does feel hopeless. Particularly on the internet, you just see people like prey to these two extremes, very dualistic, this or that. And what I hope that this book can help people do is realize like there's a huge gulf between that and we have to exist in this gulf. Otherwise we're screwed.
0: Brad, do you feel like um, when you think about the the dualistic thinking that is truly so much of social media? And I will tell you that personally, everyone listening, I've said this before. I don't look at social media anymore, and I haven't for a while because I have very thin skin, and I don't like to, you know, have anti-Semitic, anti-gay stuff flow into my feed. And like, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to think about it. Um, and Mark really does manage my social account. I have to be honest with you, it makes me feel like I'm less a part of that this or that world, and it has been a gift to myself. What is your view on the the social media feeding dualistic versus non-dual thinking?
1: Uh, you hit the nail on the head. I, I, I think there's very little nuance in non-dual thinking on social media, in complete transparency and honesty for you and the listeners, the main reason that I'm on social media is because many people find my work and read my books as a result of something I put on Instagram or Twitter. If that mm-hmm. wasn't the case, I wouldn't be doing it because it has the same effect on my brain. I don't love social media. I don't even like it. However, I think that that is where so many people are and so many people go for entertainment, news, Entertainment and news. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between entertainment and news. Um, And I think that the way that you exist is probably much healthier. And also, it's much more real. Like, touch grass. Instead of like yelling at some person that might not even be real, they might be an artificial intelligence bot created by the Kremlin, like, go talk to your neighbor. So, I completely endorse your approach. One of my goals,
0: come with me, just hire someone else to do it. It's so it's delightful.
1: Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've played around with that. And I've I've tried and what I find is that um, I know that you have been working with Mark for so long, it's just hard to find someone that can capture your voice. Um, And maybe one day I'll be you know, you're a little bit more big time than me, Jill. So like, (laughs) maybe maybe one day, maybe this is the book, maybe this book will go big time and I won't have to be there. Um, I feel like, and and you could tell me I'm wrong. We could flip the table. You could coach me. I feel like it is a part of my job and I don't like it, Mm. but you can't like all parts of your job. And my inner work, so to say, that sounds very new agey is to put really good boundaries and constraints around how I use it so that it doesn't ruin my brain. Cause there are so many examples of very thoughtful, smart people in social media, just completely ruin their brains.
0: Hmm. I was funny. I was listening to a podcast. So I do. I mean, maybe the time that you're spending on social media, I'm listening to too many podcasts. I walk dogs. And so I have that as part of my life. And I was listening to a podcast and a very famous journalist basically said, I doom scroll through Twitter to make myself feel good and bad. And I used to be able to find one interesting thing a day and now I don't really find anything. I always felt like, first of all, I'm older than you are. So I always felt a little bit like, yeah, it's my job. And it was a little bit more fun in 2010 when I started to go on Twitter. And I remember getting that verified checkmark through CBS News. I was really like, oh, that's so cool. I don't remember when it was. It must be now, it's probably five or six years ago, where Mark's like, you're not going on social media anymore. Like, you're just not. It's too upsetting to you. I do, and I'm very sensitive. And so I really do... I mean, Mark will filter through things and he will forward things to me that are important. But, you know, I just felt like I didn't see how it was doing me much good. I don't think, yeah, I think that people can discover your work through that. I have a different kind of a platform and a different life. But also, I'm kind of like, I'm so old. I don't really care that much. Like, if I don't sell enough books because I'm not on social, I hope my publisher is not listening. I don't really care. I just don't because I feel like my... Mental health and my stability is much is a much better prize than selling you know five thousand more books
1: so so I think that that's true Jill I do think that there's there's one other element to this which is I think you kind of not kind of you you really need to know yourself mm. and to be really deliberate if you're going to use these tools as professional on how you use them what I mean by that is like I have very strict boundaries that I mostly abide by. Like I do very little scrolling. Like I post when I want to post. I go in, I do read the comments cuz sometimes you find someone that says like, "Holy crap, I was suffering with terrible OCD and this book changed my life." And you know, I want to tell that person like much love, hang in there because mm-hmm. you never know when you're going to meet someone when they need to hear that. But it does not work for me without those really strict boundaries of like 30 minutes a day or 45 minutes a day, whatever it might be. And then the other really important thing, I think, for, for listeners that maybe don't use social media as their job and, and maybe have a better relationship with it or better experience with it is just to remember that once you post something on social media, you are implicitly linking some of your enjoyment of that thing to how others perceive you doing it. Yes. So my personal rule is no pictures of my kids, no pictures of me walking my dog, No pictures of me in the gym. Why? Because I want those things to be good enough as they are. Like, I think my kids are beautiful. I love training. The minute that that goes on social media and now someone says, oh, that deadlift looked great or your kids are so cute. Like, you can tell yourself that doesn't affect you, but study after study shows that it absolutely affects you. Um, So I think it's so important to define what you're using it for. In what parts of your life are just good enough as they are.
0: I hope you like these interviews. This is the kind of stuff that we're going to be putting behind the paywall. If you'd like to join Jill on Money Live, just go to jillonmoney.com. There's a link right there. Again, you have access to quarterly live webinars and bonus content like this. So check it out. Thank you so much for listening. We always appreciate that. Do something nice for someone else today. Change your work, change your wealth, change your life. See you tomorrow.